This is episode 48 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. This episode goes back to the 2009 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold Christ's Beautiful Bride. This is session one, Monday night with Dr. Gary Brashears. You know, it's interesting that, that Mark remembers certain things very well. And uh, he remembers pain well. Uh, so, we're going to use our Bible up here. So that's going to be up there a lot. I lost my piece of tape. Oh, tape people. Scott, you got a piece of tape that went away. Okay, there it is. Tape. I know we put it down there. Why would somebody steal a piece of tape? Do you wonder about that? Good. Okay, we're good. Okay, because we're going to do Bible stuff tonight. A lot of Bible stuff. You know, it, uh, it is really good to hear you guys singing like Baptists. I mean, I'm so tired of the wimpy singing, and tonight you sang like Baptists. I mean, what's the deal? Are you, like, practicing for church or something? It's just, it's great. So, in uh, uh, just, you know, it's really fun to see so many friends here tonight, and it just, it's really good. Um, why don't we take just a minute to pray before we begin? Lord, we're going to give ourselves tonight to looking at your word and trying to think through what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the gospel that you proclaim so powerfully throughout all of history from the very beginning from Genesis chapter 3 and we'll proclaim that gospel, the good news and the wonder again all the way into heaven. I pray as we open up your word tonight that you will empower your word by your spirit and that we will think together well, not just for the sake of information, but for the sake of life change and gospel empowerment. Grant us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I had this uh, goal when I came to Western Seminary back in 1980. Uh, I, had a, I had several goals. I wanted to invest in lives of people like Mark, and, and uh, I've done that. I mean, I look at all the different people here that I've had a chance to work with. It's very cool. And one of my goals, and one of my strongest goals, is that I would retire from Western Seminary someday with no books in print. And I was well on that way until about a year ago. And now with Mark Driscoll, we have three books in print. One of them's out on the thing out there, the Vintage Church. I am unhappily working on book four, and we're talking about book five. Pray for me, brethren and sisters. I got a bad, atti- <clears throat> bad attitude toward writing. But sometimes God calls you to do things you got to do. And uh, we put some stuff in there that is, uh, it's, it's, it's caught into a thing. And part of what I like, Mark is the same age as my sons. He's a pastor of mega church. He's a theologian on the side. I'm a theologian, first of all, and pastor in a church, Grace Community Church in Gresham, a CB church. And that partnership has been a very productive partnership. And part of what I like is the intergenerational piece uh, where we are working with each other. Uh, My son David is here with my grandgirls and with his wife, and it's very fun to partner with my sons. Uh, It's just that intergenerational thing is very, 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 very cool. And I look at several of you who have invested in my life and that process of working together, all centered on the gospel is what we're about. So what I want to do tonight is look at what's actually chapter one of Vintage Church, which is, what is the gospel? Because that's what we're founded on. And what I find is that most people actually don't know what the gospel is. And it's ironic. Uh, I went to Dallas, Texas back in August, and my sister took me to a little Baptist church, not Baptist. That's a different brand. She took me to a Baptist, B-A-B-D-I-S church. I hadn't been to a Baptist church in a long time. And so I was kind of looking forward to it. And I walked in and I knew I was in a Baptist church because there was a guy standing there with a suit that was a couple sizes too small with a huge Bible under his hand. And I knew this is the preacher, not the pastor, the preacher. 
and he welcomed me, showed that he's a pastor as well, and everybody's so glad to see me. It was just, it was a wonderful time to share in there and feel that ethos. Of course, it was all from King James, because Baptists do that. And uh, we did some singing. They had a keyboard, but it sounded like the rinky-tink pianos that I'd grown up with back in Missouri. And I just, I just felt at home. It was just really good to go back to my roots. And the guy preached, uh, and he preached with great enthusiasm. Not a lot of insight, but a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it was, it was so much like what I grew up with. And at the end, I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. What song did she break into at the end? Absolutely, just as I am. And he began the gospel call, and I thought, oh, man, this is great. And the gospel call that he gave was something like this. Uh, Y'all are sinners. This is in Dallas. Jesus came and died for you. So you can have what? Forgiveness of sin. Uh, let's see, we've got to make this a little better there. Uh, and give you eternal life so you can go to heaven. Heaven. <laughs> Yeah, you can go to heavy. That's part of Baptist heritage, Baptist heritage too. <laughs> is that the gospel? What in that presentation is wrong? You all are really silent. <laughs> Pardon? Uh, well, what in there is wrong? Well, now that you're talking, I'm, I'm not talking about stuff that's that's missing. What is wrong with what's there? Nothing. The, everything there is good. Everything there is good. There's nothing wrong with anything that's there. What's wrong, as several of you tried to point out correctly, is what's not there. Now we could go through some stuff. Uh, but what I'd like to do is take this central time tonight and go to what is the gospel. Uh, because what I find is that uh, a lot of people simply don't know what it is. And if we do the gospel, we have to begin with bad news. Okay. Where do we find the bad news in the Bible? Where's a good statement of the bad news? Okay, I heard somebody. This we'll do. I heard somebody say Ephesians two. That's that's one. That's a good one. Okay, there is bad news. Okay, what's the first bit of bad news? You're dead. Okay, so bad news number one is you are dead. Means what? It means you're separated. From God. Does that mean, does in Bible, does dead mean that you're non-functional? It actually doesn't mean that. Uh, a lot of people take this passage in Ephesians, and they take that dead and say that you're spiritually unable to respond to God. That may be true, but that's not what this passage takes. It That takes dead in a different direction. Because people are still alive and rebelling against God. So the key idea is you're separated from God. Okay, that's the first point of bad news. What's the second point of the bad news? What's the second point of the bad news? You followed what? The ways of this world and the ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world? You worship the wrong God. 
Now, that's bad news. That's bad news. Uh, this actually, when people talk about the bad news, they almost always leave this one out. They don't talk about the fact that we worship the wrong God. Because I think there is a, our, our society has been very materialistic, very scientific. And the spiritual realm is pretty much ruled out, and that has infected the church really badly. So it's amazing to me how many people, when they do this, they just skip verse 2 or go past it really quickly. But this is a huge problem as people worship the wrong God. And in our fourth session, I want to take some time to really talk about what do you do with people who are hooked up with the wrong God. Because the Bible gives us some clear direction in this place we need some stuff. So step two is we worship the wrong God. What's step three in the bad news? We are sinful nature, NIV puts it, sarks. So step three in the bad news is we are addicted to stuff. Can you use that? Evil desires. Like what? What are some evil desires? Self. What else? Sex. Sex is good. I like sex. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Been married for almost 41 years, and it's a good thing. So nothing wrong with that. Well, am I addicted to having, making love with Sherry? Mm, yeah, I am. I like that. What, what's wrong with sex? You guys are a bunch of prudes. We are addicted to filling that good desire in bad ways. So many of these things are actually good desires, but they're fulfilled in the wrong way. So many of the evil desires are really good desires, but filled in bad ways. And there's a lot we could say about the, the kinds of those evil desires, but we're addicted to them. And once we get into it, for me, I mean, the stuff I wrestle with, uh, the pornography and those kinds of things are not major issues with me. Uh, the thing that are issues with me is competitiveness, cynicism. Uh, I can get really competitive. And I can just take the legs out from under people and not even be aware of it. And that's an evil sin. Now, there's a good side to that because there are places you ought to be in competition. But those kinds of things, and there's, a, there's just, you're just tied into stuff. Third point of the bad news. Fourth point of the bad news is what? The fourth point of the bad news is God is mad at us. That's very bad news. You know, it's amazing to me how often in presentation of the gospel that's skipped. Because, gosh, you want to hear that God is mad at you. You know, it's not nice. Doesn't God love you? Say yes. Thank you. Okay. God loves you. Is God also mad at you if you're a sinner? Yes. Doesn't God love the sinner and hate the sin? What a dumb statement. Frankly, what a dumb statement. It's sinners who sin. And the statements in Scripture is, I hate evildoers. Trying to separate sinners from sin, that's not the solution. The solution is that God loves and hates sinful people. The people are genuinely sinful, and he hates that. His anger is huge against that. But at the same time, he is willing to come, call, and die for us. You've got to have those both. God is characterized by complex emotions. And what we tend to do is simplify things a lot. So, bad news. Okay, we could look at other stuff. There's, well, there's a lot of them. Titus 3. Uh, where's the good news? Where's the good news? What passage would you go to 
for kind of the definitive statement of the good news. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we often go. 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel I preached to you, you received. By this gospel you're saved, the other, if you hold it. He says, for I received, I passed on to you. And he has, Christ died according to the, for our sins, according to the scriptures, evidenced by burial. And he was raised on a third day, again, according to the scriptures, and proven by his resurrection appearances, death and resurrection. That's the core of the gospel, but I don't think that's the full statement of the gospel. What is the book about the church? Book of Acts. I think that's where the gospel is. I think that in Luke's account, he gives us the first book that tells us who Jesus is and what he did. In the second book of Acts, second book of Luke, the book of Acts, the book of the church begins with the founding of the gospel. And that foundation is what we're going to spend some time looking at. So Acts chapter 1 talks about the uh, resurrection work of Jesus, about the kingdom of God. And he said, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift. Uh, And so he gets the gift. And they said, Lord, is, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's not a dumb question. It comes right out of Ezekiel 36. Because when they heard the Holy Spirit was coming, they assumed the new covenant was going to be completely established. And the regathering of Israel is coming along with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit when you look at Ezekiel uh, 36, like 25. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit in you. You'll Then you'll live in the land. I will, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. See, the Holy Spirit and the coming of Israel go together. So this question is not a dumb question. It's a very important question. Is this the time you're going to bring the millennium? You're going to restore Israel? And his answer is what? His answer is not. Guys, you missed the whole point. His answer is not yet. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but what you will do is you receive Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And that's the thing. Now, they have this little business meeting, and we could took at that, but we won't. And day of Pentecost, they're gathered together. The Holy Spirit comes, filled with the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, love to teach on that, but we won't. Uh, are these Galileans, you know, and very good... And then they suggest these guys are drunk. Then Peter stands up and he says, no, these guys are not drunk. Let me explain what's going on. And what does he do? What's the explanation? The explanation is what? The new covenant prophesied in the Old Testament has begun. That's what Peter's explanation of what's happened here. He says the Holy Spirit is coming, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, Jeremiah 31. I mean, it's all over the prophets. It goes clear back to at least to to Deuteronomy 32. The promised Holy Spirit has come. The new covenant has begun. And what happens under the new covenant? Well, that's what we're going to see here. So he quotes from Joel, quotes from Joel 2, pour out my spirit on all your people, and all this cool stuff is going to come. And he says... Men of Israel, listen to this. There's the gospel. It starts from here and it goes to the end of the chapter. Luke begins his book of the inauguration of the church by using, giving us the gospel. And what I want to do is just read it right out of the text. And what happens, I find, is that most of the time, unless you read this out of the text, you end up skipping important stuff. It's like, he did this for a reason, I think. So, what's the first stage of the gospel? Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God. Now, he's appealing back to the first book, accredited by God by miracles, wonders, and signs. Uh, So, what's step one of the gospel? Well, Jesus, Jesus is more than a man. Okay. So Jesus, I'm going to summarize here a lot because you have to really go back to the first thing. Jesus is Emmanuel. 
which means what? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. What does that mean? It means that in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity has become incarnate and he has lived with us as a, most of the time, living as a perfectly spirit-filled human being. Now, a lot we could do with that. He is the second person of the Trinity. I who lives with us as a perfectly spirit-filled human most of the time. Now, is he always living as a spirit-filled human? No, sometimes he pops and sizzles. What are a couple times when Jesus pops and sizzles? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. I mean, he really big time does then. Uh, how about when he raised people from the dead? Is that Jesus popping and sizzling? Is that Jesus playing the God card? When he raises people from the dead, I suggest to you it's not. How come? Because Peter does it in the, New T- in the Acts. If raising somebody from the dead is an act of divinity, then Peter's divine. I realize this is kind of earth-shaking if you stop and think about it. But I suggest to you that Jesus is fully God incarnate, but he lays aside his status of deity and lives most of the time as a perfectly spirit-filled human being. The stuff he does, we should be able to do if we are perfectly spirit-filled. Now, not everyone else is going to do everything he does, but through the church we should be able to do the things that he did. Why? We have the Holy Spirit. Now, that's pretty radical stuff because when I ask people, I say, well, Jesus did so-and-so, people will usually say, well, gosh, I, I know Jesus did that, but I can't do that. He's God and I'm not. What do you say when somebody says that? Amen. You are not God. Keep that in mind. But the other side beyond that is a mistake I think, because most of the time Jesus lives a perfectly spirit-filled human life. And we, he lives among us as a fully human person, but he's also God fully present. Now that divine human stuff, it's a little confusing. But I think what happens is that in our theologizing, we press too much toward the divine side out of reaction to people who deny his deity and say he was just a man which we must protect. But typically reactionary, we go too far. I think, and I think I could prove it to you from Scripture, that Jesus lives a life under the authority of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the things he does are the things we do. The gospel, first of all, is God has come among us to show us what life should be. Okay? Now, that's a lot more than what's there because I'm appealing back. Okay, step two of the gospel is in the next verse. What's step two? Step two, he was killed. Same thing we saw in Corinthians. Now, was that a mistake? Was that a tragic martyr's death? No. Just like it says in Corinthians, fulfilling God's plan. So he died. Uh, He was killed by bad people. Okay, so that's step two. Step three. What's step three? God raised him from the dead. Let's put it this way. He was raised. Okay. What about verse 25? What's more about resurrection? Okay. How about verse 26? 
Well, that's more about resurrection. That's quoting the Old Testament. Keeps quoting Old Testament. Down at verse 29. Well, it's more about resurrection. Verse 30. What's still more about resurrection? 31's resurrection. 32's resurrection. Now look at that. Isn't this weird? How many verses did the cross get? How many verses did the cross get? One. How many verses did the resurrection get? Nine. Why is it that so often when people talk about gospel, they skip resurrection? Or they make that the afterthought to focus on cross. Now, cross is vital. But it's interesting that here in 1 Corinthians 15, that it's the resurrection that gets the emphasis. Huh. We'll have to see why here in a second. So he got resurrected. Okay, so we're at it on at 29. David has died, seeing he spoke of resurrection. God has raised Jesus to life. We're all witness that fact. What happens to verse 33? He is exalted. So, why did we losing? Okay. He was exalted. And what happened when he was exalted? Now, I'm going to do something a little weird here. I'm going to steal something from my friend. My friend, Steve Walker, uh, is the pastor at Redeemer's Fellowship down in Roseburg, and he co-teaches evangelism apologetic. I was a supervisor for his demon dissertation, one thing or another. And he broke gospel down for me in a real helpful kind of way. And what he did is uh, he presented this in terms of what God did. Uh, then a next stage is what we do. And a final stage is what we get. So when you say what God did, we would call this revelation, what God did. What would you call what we do? Response. Okay. And what would you call what we get? So let's break it down like this, because the first one comes pretty straightforward in terms of just revelation, what God did. What God did, God came among us in Jesus. He was killed, resurrected, exalted, and the Holy Spirit comes. Okay, that in just simplest form is what happens in the revelation side. Uh, now notice in 1 Corinthians, we really only get the two because he's coming in right to the heart of it. But here we get a little bit more, okay? So he does that, and the people heard that you crucified both Lord and Christ. That's part of the exalted. So he is exalted as Lord and Christ. The people heard this. What did they do when they heard this? Ouch, yeah. (laughs) What will we do? And Peter replies and gives them some things that they should do. What's the first thing they should do? Repent. Okay, all Baptists love repent. Repent. Spell it right. Yes. I think so. Thank you. Yeah, the, the cut to the heart... I would, that, that's a good point. I mean, there's a lot more we can put in here. Ben is just preaching Acts. I've been stealing his stuff. Uh, when, when they hear this, they're, they're cut to the heart. I'll, I'll just give you my stuff. This is a real controversial thing between the Calvinists and the Wesleyan Armenian and the open theists and the emergent folk and the cold Calvinists and the cruel Calvinists and all those people. 
I think nobody comes to Christ unless God draws them. I think the Armenian answer that people are kind of neutral and make their choice is wrong. I think we do have a sinful desire. I think we're trapped in our sin. And I think the Holy Spirit draws us. The The thing that I do is, I let's not put it there. I'll make the TV guys mad. Uh, I think the... I think that this is true. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I think God draws everybody. That's why I'm a wishy-washy Calvinist at best. Uh, I think he draws everybody, and the key way that he does that is what we see in Acts 2 when they're cut to the heart. The key way he does that is through the life proclamation of the gospel. And that was their response. I think God draws people at different levels, and that's another lecture we won't do tonight. I'll be around. What what does repent mean? What does repent mean? This is one of the most crucial, crucial, crucial things around. Because what repent means is biblically defined and is a place where English defines it differently than Bible. What does repent mean in English? Change of behavior. And if you look in in the English, if you look in the dictionary, it will say change of behavior. And I think that's wrong. I I really do, and I'll prove it to you here, because the Bible doesn't say that. I... In the Bible, we find a couple of places where repentance is defined. Uh, Just for sake of time, let me take you to Acts 26. Uh, It's just a real key passage. This is a place where Paul is explaining his gospel to Agrippa. Acts 26, uh, he says, I'll rescue your people from the Gentiles then I'm sending you to them. He said to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. Now, see again, here we have this worshiping the wrong God stuff. So that they may receive, it's a gospel thing, forgiveness of sins, place among those who are sanctified by faith. I was not disobedient. First, to, does this sound familiar? Damascus, Jerusalem, all Judea, to the Gentiles. That's Acts 1.8. I preach that they should, what? Repent. And what is the meaning of repentance? Turn to God. The word repent in Bible equals change your mind about who is God around here. And what that means is that you have a deep change of values the deep change of values, and then what will be the result of repentance? It says here, you will prove their repentance by their deeds. So the result is a change of behavior. Now, this is a huge controversy. And those of you who've been around the controversy that, that flies around with the definition of repentance, it's, uh, it's, it's a major controversy in certain parts of here in the Northwest with CB circles and others. And what happens, a lot of that debate is because repentance is misdefined. It's defined as change of behavior. Do I have to change my behavior in order to be saved? The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What is that has to change? I have to change my mind. I have to change my attitude. I have to change my allegiance about who's God around here. That's a huge change. That's the metanoia, the change of mind. But it's a change of mind about who's God around here, and that will change my basic values. And that change of who's God and what my basic likes and dislikes are will result normally in a change of behavior. And if you take that definition of repentance, a lot of the controversy 
uh, around the gospel simply disappears. Because the controversy is how much does my behavior have to change in order to be saved? And this isn't about change of behavior first. It's about change of mind about who's God around here. And if I do that, good friends of mine who are on both sides of this controversy, a lot of their, lot of their differences disappear if they'll use that definition of repentance. Where did I get that? What verse? Acts 26.20. 20, and it's in a number of other places as well, but that's probably the clearest place. Okay, back to Acts chapter 2. He says, repent. What else you got to do? You got to what? You are a bunch of wimpy Baptists all of a sudden. What is the deal here? Uh, I'm actually going to change the order on this. Uh, And what does baptized mean? This is the God-ordained way of saying I'm a Jesus follower. How many believe in baptism by immersion? About a third of the crowd. Not bad, Mark. Yeah. <clears throat> We're working hard, yeah. Didn't they read our identity document? All the work we put into that. Yeah. How many of you in baptism by immersion? Okay, that's better. How many of you leave people immersed? <laughs> yeah, we got one back here. Yeah. There are certain people you want to do it, just leave them there till they bubble. I mean, it, there's, it's good, yeah. It's tempting, it really is. We ba- believe in baptism by immersion and immersion. Romans chapter 6, what does immersion symbolize? Death. Immersion? Resurrection. And what, re- what this is saying, this is a gospel-ordained way of saying, I'm identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ both for death and resurrection. Why do we call it baptism by immersion? Why do we leave out resurrection? We do it consistently. It's bizarre. You know, look at all the different ways that we do. How many of you have accepted Jesus Christ? Raise your hand and hold it. No, that's too high. This is the way we do it. Okay, everybody close your eyes and bow your heads. Okay. You know how this goes, don't you? This is the way it happened at the Baptist church I was down there. Okay. If you have accepted Jesus your Savior, just look up at me and look right back down again. Where is that in the Bible? What does it say if you're a follower of Jesus? What should you do? Get baptized. That is the accredited way of doing it. It's very interesting how many of us make baptism not a statement of conversion, but a statement of discipleship. We delay baptism until two, three years or longer after their conversion, and it becomes a statement of discipleship, not conversion. When did they baptize him in Scripture? Right as soon as they said, I'm in. Now, upon credible profession of faith, I think we should baptize him. And I think a good baptismal service is the best proclamation of the gospel you can do. And I really buy into the idea that we invite anybody to come down and express their faith in Jesus and get baptized right on the spot. I think it's biblical. It's controversial, but it's biblical. And of course, I'm right. (laughs) Okay, so repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, how about this? Revelation, response, or result? You're not paying attention. Revelation, response, result. That's a result. So I need to come down here. And so the first result is forgiveness of sin. How many sins? All the ones I've confessed. Right? I'm getting some resistance. What? It can't be. That's too good. Like, all sins have been forgiven? 
Does that include the, the sin that I'm going to do yet tonight? Hmm. Yeah, this is, I, I, this is giving me a big blank check. So why don't I just go sin all the more? Meganoita. I'll show you why we don't sin all the more here in just a second. Because it comes right out, of the, right out of the book. Okay, we get forgiveness of sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Revelation response result. Result. Okay. Uh, gift of the Spirit. And I'm going to actually broaden this out just a little bit. New life. Now, let me just add some stuff in. This is my theology guy stuff. Forgiveness of all sin, this is what theologically we call justification. And what phrase do we always want to add after we say justification? By grace, what? Alone, through, what? Faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay. Uh, my, okay. This is what we call uh, imputed or imparted. Okay, all you theology guys know that stuff. Now, here's where I think new life is. Regeneration, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, what do I need to change there? I need to change this. Okay, now these have been through the theology thing. What I just said is really radical, but very important. What is imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is the transfer of legal status or relational status. I have an adopted daughter, Cindy. When she, well, she's not adopted because she was an adult, but she's our daughter, and we did a legal name change. She's Cindy Brashears. You can meet her down at Cannon Beach Conference Center. She runs the dining room down there. And I'm very, very proud of her. She came out of a background that was just horrible. She came to Christ about 25, and she became a part of our family. She became Cindy Brashears at 29, June 8th, 1989. We're getting ready to celebrate 20 years. It's really, really cool. When she and Sherry connived against me to give me a Father's Day present, it's a girl, you know, which I've always wanted. She got down there, and she signed that name change certificate. Big story around that. When she signed that name change certificate and Cindy Brown became Cindy Brashears, imputed or imparted? That's imputed. Why? Legal status, relational status. Then she came home. Oh, she'd actually been living with us for a while. And uh, we started giving her stuff. We gave her her room. We gave her a car eventually, those kinds of stuff. Imputed or imparted? It's imparted. Now, here's what I'd like to suggest to you. In our salvation, we get imputed righteousness, legal status of children of God. Sorry, relational status, children of God, legal status, all sins forgiven. That's standard justification theology. The other side of it is regeneration. And regeneration is imparted righteousness, we get new heart, indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, let me just put some of this stuff down here for you. In here, we have the relational status of children of God, the legal status of forgiven. Here we have the uh, imparted righteousness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
and we have the implanted new heart. Oops. Now, I think implanted, how do you spell that? Planted. I think we leave out regeneration consistently in our gospel presentations. Consistently. We talk about justification by grace alone through faith alone. Absolutely true. And skip right to sanctification, which is living out our new status in Christ. And when we live out regeneration, we leave out the new heart. We leave out the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's why our Christianity is so powerless. All we have is status. We don't have transformation. And what happens is in the pietistic circles, and that's a broad category, the new life crowd, they went for the new heart. And I think we should too. Two things we get, and there's more. One thing we get is justification. Legal status of forgiveness, relational status, children of God, John 1.12. We also get new heart and indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what we get. When? At conversion. At conversion. That's why we get a change of behavior. Because our basic likes change. Because that new heart, my basic uh, values, my uh, deepest likes, desires, change. It's an imparted righteousness. Now, let me just show you here real quickly. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Romans 5, 18 one trespass led to what? Condemnation. Is that imputed or imparted? That's imputed. On the other side is justification that brings life for all. Imputed or imparted? Imputed. Now look at the next verse. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. Imputed or imparted? That's imparted. That's the sin nature. Through the obedience of many, many will be made righteous, imputed or imparted. It's imparted. There you have in Romans 5, 18 and 19, the imputed, imparted parallel. Why do I not sin? Because deeply I don't want to sin. Most deeply I don't want to sin. My deepest desire is to be like Jesus. So when we follow this through, Romans chapter 5 basically is talking about justification. Romans chapter 6 is talking basically about regeneration. What's Romans chapter 7 talking about? It's talking about those who are justified and regenerated who still sin. What am I going to do about the sin in my life? The first part of Romans 7, and really the whole of Romans 7, says don't add law to sinful desires. It won't work. Romans chapter 8 says, live out the new life of the Spirit. That's how you deal with sin. So in Romans 7, Romans 7, starting at verse 14, here's where we have Paul talking as a justified, regenerate believer. What is it that he wants to do here, good or evil? Doesn't he say, nothing good lives in me? No, he doesn't say nothing good lives in me. What is it? Where does nothing good live? In my sinful nature. Those evil desires are still a part of my life. For I have the desire to do what is good, he says. For what I do is not the good I want to do. I keep doing the evil. How come I cannot consistently do good if my heart, my deepest desires are godly? Because of that blasted sin stuff. See, we're not done yet. We're still between the times. Deepest desires are godly, but lots of powerful, sinful desires. So, test. 
Jeremiah 17, 9. Does that describe you? Jeremiah 17, 9, does that describe you? No. In Jeremiah 17, that's talking about hard-hearted, unregenerate Israel that's going into captivity. That does not describe the soft-hearted believer. Look at it in context. What he's talking about in Jeremiah 17 is sinful Judah. These are the bad guys. These are the ones who you have kindled my anger and it will burn forever. Cursed is the one who depends on the flesh for his strength and so on. That's the one whose heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. We who are regenerate have a new heart. And that new heart is what's described in Romans 7. See, the gospel talks about deep change in us. And we keep denying that by saying, if I do what I want to do, I will always sin. That's not true. Justification means change status. Legal status, children of God. Sorry, relational status, children of God. Legal status, forgiven all sin. The imparted righteousness is indwelling Holy Spirit, implanted new heart, and my deepest desires are godly desires. We keep underselling the work of the Holy Spirit because our gospel is messed up. We've got to get the regeneration piece in there. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of the Holy Spirit is huge. It comes out of the resurrection. What power do we have in us? We have the resurrection power of God in us. And because we don't teach that, we leave people addicted to their evil desires. And we try to solve it by religion, just try harder. We try to solve it by coping. We try to solve it by all kinds of things that don't work. What is going to change that kind of stuff? Well, fundamentally, living out that new life that's in you. I hear people say all the time, I'm a totally new creature in Christ. No, you're not. you still got lots of sinful desires. But your deepest desires have changed. That's regeneration, transformation of the Holy Spirit. We do have the Holy Spirit in us, and it's changed us. Don't undersell the gospel. I hear it all the time. Okay. Gosh, this clock runs really fast. Acts, we've got a few more minutes here. I'm going to use them well. Acts 2.38. Repent, be baptized, forgiveness, sin, gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for your children. He warned them to save yourselves from this corrupt thing. What happens here? Those who accepted the message. Revelation response result. That's response. What do we call somebody who has accepted the message? That is this faith or belief or trust that what oops I said sorry, what God says is true. I mean the simplest definition of faith is taking God at his word. Really believing what God says is the good way really is. Uh, so we have here under the response, we have repentance, change of mind about who's God, we have faith entrusting myself to what God says, and then baptism is the way of saying that, proclaiming it to everybody. Okay, they were baptized, three solid, added to their number. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is happening here? What is this talking about? Revelation, response, result. And what is the result here? The Result here is a new supernatural community. It's a community, and I just to make Mark happy, <laughs> covenant community, <laughs> which I deeply believe, though that term is not in here. But certainly that com- they devoted themselves to each other. Listen to Ben's sermon on going along together. It was great. Uh, First Baptist Eugene. They, how did you say it, Ben? They moved along together. 
rushing along together in unison. And he just pumped it and pumped it. That's what we're doing. We're part of a new community. It's a supernatural community. It's a covenant community. How many gospel presentations bring the community in? So many of them, it's just me and God. I'm forgiven. I've got eternal life. I'm going to heaven. And we just skip by the community. We're a part of a community. And it's not just any community. It's not a Kiwanis club. It's not three guys together in a pub drinking beer and talking about Jesus. It's a miracle. They are, what was this? Should we have wonders and miraculous signs done in our community today? Not just salvation. I think we should have supernatural stuff going on in our community today. I think it was powerful. Now, the super miracles were rare then and they're rare today, but I think we have undersold the power of the Holy Spirit because we've over-divinized Jesus. There should be supernatural knowledge in our community today. I'll just give you a quick example. I was working with a fellow a while back, a psychologist friend of mine, believing psychologist, sent him over because he had some major, major, major guilt issues. And so my friend sent him over and said, Gary, you're the guilt guy. Work on him. I'm the psychologist. I can... Okay, and that team worked together. It's a great way to do things. Ministry is a team thing. And I worked with a number of counselors in this process. So this guy came over, and man, guilt, he was just riddled with guilt. So I'm doing all my kind of normal spiritual stuff. I mean, I know what I'm doing when it comes to guilt, and I was getting nowhere. And I was frustrated. So what was I doing? I was praying. God, break this open. Something's happening here, and I'm getting nowhere. Your word is not working the way it should. Something is going on here. God, show me what's going on. And we talked, and I'm probing and all doing all kind of the normal pastoral counseling stuff I do. And all of a sudden, in my head, I mean, it wasn't a voice, but it could have been pornography. And nothing in the counseling to that point had gone there. So I let him finish what he was saying. And I turned to him, I just looked at him and said, Bill, are you doing pornography? And I watched all the color drain of his face. How did you know? God gave me the piece of information I needed. He had not connected his guilt with his pornography use. He had just, I mean, he wasn't trying to avoid it. He had never occurred to him, not dumb, you know. I needed that bit of information, and God gives it to me. That should be fairly normal, I think, if the Holy Spirit is acting among us. We, we say we believe it, but a lot of times we don't. Supernatural community. And what is most supernatural? They shared their stuff. I mean, that is really amazing. <laughs> so, supernatural community and the... Fourth thing is new mission. And implied is new destination. It's not stated here, but it's implied. So, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is this. Jesus Emmanuel, he was he died, he rose again. He was exalted, sent the Holy Spirit. If we repent and believe, expressed in baptism, we get forgiveness of sin, new life, new community, new mission, new destination. That's the gospel. Get it all. Get it all. There's a lot more we could unpack with this, but if you get it, it's there. Let's say it together. What is the gospel? Jesus is God with us. He was killed. He rose exalted, sent the Holy Spirit, if we repent and believe, expressed in baptism, we get forgiveness of sin. Ah, you guys are cheating and just following me. New life of the Spirit, new community, new mission, new destination. Memorize it. Seriously, memorize it. What time do we start tomorrow morning? Nine o'clock, you got lots of time and lots of time. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the power of your gospel. It is so transforming and so free. God, I love it. But I love you a lot more. Thank you, Father, for loving us with an unending love, for pursuing us. Jesus, thank you for coming among us 
to die and rise again. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to unite us and to transform us and empower us. We love you, triune God. We want to be more like you, to live your life more powerfully because of our study together. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.